Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening. I'm Liz Mitchell, and welcome to this edition of Bring It On, broadcasting from WFHB radio station located in Bloomington, Indiana. We're a multiple award-winning show now in our 15th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African Americans. Good evening, I'm William Hosea, and above all else, I gotta say welcome back to my colleague, Liz Mitchell. We missed you and dark past, bright future. Um, The president's impeachment trial is now over with Trump being acquitted by the majority Republican Senate. The final vote went mainly down party lines, however, It is remarkable to note that Republican Utah Senator Mitt Romney broke party ranks when casting the only yes to convict vote at the end of the trial. Within days after his acquittal, an enraged Donald Trump blasted the impeachment process as a sham and bogus witch hunt, then ousted several officials who gave damaging testimony in the impeachment. U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Wiedemann was t- uh, who testified about a controversial phone call between Trump and the Ukrainian president was fired from his job along with his, his brother Eugene Wiedemann with the National Security Council and Gordon Sandlin, U.S. Ambassador to the European Union, was recalled. Finally, Trump took great delight in railing against Nancy Pelosi at a national prayer breakfast. So going forward, here's a very important question. How and one which we hope our our guests can help us to answer. How can the House of Representatives, a co-equal branch of government, fulfill its role in providing oversight of the executive branch? Are there safeguards against witness intimidation and retaliation? And finally, what legal maneuvers could have been launched to compel witnesses to testify in the hearings and the actual trial? These are just few of the many questions that are now being asked in the wake of the recent impeachment process. Here to help us process things is Daniel Conkle and um, a Robert H. McKinney Professor, Law Emeritus, and Adjunct Professor of Religious Studies at Indiana University. He's been a member of the faculty since 1983. Professor Conkle teaches constitutional law, the First Amendment, and law and religion. His research addresses constitutional law and theory, religious liberty, and the role of religion in American law, politics, and public life. His most recent book is Religion, Law, and the Constitution, published in 2016 by Foundation Press. Professor Conkle, welcome to Bring It On. Can't wait to hear what you got to say. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me here. 
So that was a long and tedious uh, process, and some you know it w- it was really a challenge to sit through and and watch hours and hours uh, of it. I don't think anybody really did watch all of it except the media. Uh, so I'm going to ask you to just reflect back on that and summarize what happened uh, from beginning to end, and then we'll try and unpack it from there. Sure, sure, sure. Well, you, you, we have to remember that that the impeachment did not arise out of the Robert Mueller investigation, if you remember that one. Okay, so Robert Mueller, as independent counsel, concluded that even though there were 10 possible instances of obstruction of justice involving President Trump in the Russia uh, collusion investigation, uh, they did not warrant, in Mueller's view, indictment of the president for reasons that the president is not subject to indictment under longstanding guidance of the Justice Department. Uh, so no impeachment arising out of the Mueller investigation. We then have the uh, disclosure of the telephone call through the whistleblower and the House of Representatives at that point uh, Speaker Pelosi decided that this is sufficiently bad, that this does warrant impeachment. She had been holding off, held, holding off on that before. So impeachment moves forward. You have uh, multiple witnesses, in fact, testifying, despite President Trump's request that they not testify. Others did not. Uh, they refused to testify, even though they had been subpoenaed, with the president asserting uh, executive privilege. Uh, so basically, the House... Uh, compiles evidence, the House moves forward with impeachment in December. Uh, And they vote in favor of impeachment, as you mentioned, pretty much on a strict party line uh, vote in the House. You then have Speaker Pelosi hold up the articles, if you remember, for about a month, hoping to be able to leverage uh, the situations so as to ensure certain trial procedures in the Senate She was unable to do that, uh, and I think the senators on the Democratic side as well as the Republican decided, especially the Democratic side, which mattered here, we better go forward with it in any case. So the trial then begins in about the middle of January in the Senate, runs for about three weeks. You have the House managers, who are basically prosecutors, uh, led by Adam Schiff, uh, present the evidence, uh, which they regarded as overwhelming, that the president had committed two two impeachable offenses. One was obstruction of, uh, I should say, abuse of power uh, in uh, in basically leveraging or uh, you might say blackmailing almost uh, the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, to in fact begin an investigation of Joe Biden and his son Hunter. And, and if he didn't, uh, basically he was going to hold up military aid for Ukraine. He ended up uh, turning over that aid, but only after it had come, become public uh, that, that, in fact, the, the call had been made. The White House did release a, a uh, not word for word, but a reconstructed transcript of the call. Uh, and then the House moved forward uh, from there, had the witnesses, uh, and uh, moved forward uh, to impeachment. Once it got to the, to the Senate, as I mentioned, you have the House managers present the evidence which they thought was overwhelming, not only on the abuse of power, but also on obstruction of Congress, 
precisely because Trump had, in fact, blocked witnesses, refused to turn over documents. So they thought there were two grounds for impeachment. The House, uh, the managers presented both of them. Uh, at the end of the day, they also insisted that despite the fact that the evidence was overwhelming, they still thought the Senate should call more witnesses, including especially John Bolton, uh, who had made dis- uh, disclosures through an unpublished book manuscript that he basically thought that there was indeed a quid pro quo uh, in terms of the military aid uh, and what President Trump uh, was wanting in terms of an investigation of the Bidens. Uh, the Senate uh, ultimately voted uh with two Republicans joining the Democrats uh, to reject uh, witnesses, 51 to 49, uh, despite Mitt Romney, who you mentioned earlier, uh, and in that case, Susan Collins agreeing there should be witnesses, but that still only got it to 49. So there were no additional witnesses, and at that point, it was really pretty much over. Uh, There were closing arguments, and the Senate ended up voting uh, strict party line. uh, Mitt Romney... uh, stayed with his Republican colleagues on the obstruction of Congress. But as you mentioned, he voted to convict the president with respect to the abuse of power uh, article, which was really the primary article, uh, which was uh, the first time actually in U.S. history in which a senator in an impeachment trial has voted against a president of his own party. Well, my question is... um and, and I feel he did, but I'm not a lawyer. President Trump, he did obstruct justice, correct? Well, so you basically have the, the and I've got the articles here, so let me refresh my memory in terms of the way that the charge is, in fact, framed. Uh, the, first, the first article is not called obstruction of justice. It is called abuse of power. So basically, in the Mueller context, of the Russia investigation, there the charge was obstruction of justice, that the president was trying to protect himself and others from potential criminal charges. In this case, the the House chose not to allege any criminal offense by the president. Uh, It could have tried to allege bribery. There was talk about that at one point, which would be a criminal offense. They didn't do that. So technically, they're saying abuse of power, not honoring the president's oath to uh, to faithfully execute his office as president, but instead engaging in uh, what what some called a uh, you know a, a personal political uh, exercise rather than uh, exercising his job as president to uh, to honor the. But the, didn't the he break he the law by telling them don't go after they were subpoenaed? Actually, not. Not. I mean, uh, basically, that's basically the president's position here. And I think maybe the reason why even Mitt Romney voted in favor of acquittal on that charge, it, it, it's it's a closer case because because basically, the president does have recognized by the U.S. Supreme Court an executive privilege to, in fact, protect confidences that might be between the president and t- high-level advisors. So the president's position is, look, I asserted uh, executive privilege, and this goes back to a question that William was, was suggesting earlier. What could Congress have done? In the president's view, what Congress could have done and should have done is go to court. 
If you think the president is improperly objecting to subpoenas, go to court. Don't just impeach me for, for asserting what the president says are my constitutional prerogatives. Uh, go to court and let's play it out. Well, you know, from the Democratic side, they didn't want to do that because it would take months. Uh, so basically, that contributed to the president's argument that his Republican uh, senators agreed with, you know, that the process was too hasty, you should have gone to court and worked these things out. Uh, and maybe, uh, in fact, there was there was some litigation where one of the witnesses who had been subpoenaed tried to go to court himself. I uh, forget the name of, of that witness. Was it John uh, Dowd? Could have been. Uh, b- but basically, he wanted to go to court and get a declaratory judgment as to whether or not he should follow the subpoena or the president's order that he not testify. And, and that ended up uh, getting dropped, I think because the House dropped the subpoena. I can't remember exactly what happened. But anyway, so the president is saying, go to court. Well, explain for those of us that, that really need it, you know, like ABC. Yeah. The House impeached him. Right. And the Senate didn't. The Senate did not convict is the they technical did. way. Okay, yeah. so yeah. is he impeached as far as history goes? Yes. He was impeached. He was impeached. He was impeached, and he thereby joins two other presidents who have been impeached. The first was Andrew Johnson, who uh, who came into office after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. Uh, the second was Bill Clinton. Uh, he was impeached uh, as well. So they were both impeached by the House of Representatives, and like Trump, they were both acquitted. So basically, the way it works is it's it's vaguely like a trial. The impeachment by the House of Representatives is somewhat similar to an indictment. Uh, in the criminal process. So you get indicted uh, in the federal system uh, in the criminal context by a grand jury. So the House of Representatives is like that. And then it becomes a trial before the Senate. The Senate then votes to convict or acquit. And the way the Constitution is set up, it takes two thirds to convict. So that even if you know three or four or five Republicans uh, had joined Romney, Uh, That wouldn't be enough. It would have taken like 20 uh, to get to 67 votes in the Senate to convict and remove Trump from office. Let's go back to the Supreme Court uh, for a minute, because the the Democrats did not want to pursue the subpoenas through the courts because they felt it would take too long. But when you think back to the election in 2000, Gore v. Mm -hmm. Bush, the Supreme Court swung into action within a matter of days. And, and handed the election to Bush. Was there any way that the Democrats could have implored the Supreme Court to, to, to kind of take a fast track because they needed a decision, an important decision in this case? Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I mean, who knows how it would have come out? But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, basically uh, the, the way the subpoena would have been enforced, first Congress would have gone to a U.S. District Court and if that, and they would have and properly could have requested prompt, expedited consideration of the subpoena, uh, you know, the demand that it be enforced, and it would have gone up to appeal, could have gone straight to the Supreme Court pretty quickly. Um, you know, you never know. You know, the Supreme Court has discretion as to whether it thinks it's important to decide things right away or instead to let the lower courts deal with them for a while. But that was a, uh, in a sense, a strategic judgment by the House uh, that 
may or may not have been the right one. You know, and and it really, <clears throat> from from my vantage point, it just doesn't make sense because if they were concerned that it was going to take too long, but there was a mechanism in place to to speed it to expedite it, then it kind of cancels that argument that it would take too long, doesn't it? Why would you not use that option? Yeah, I I mean I I tend to agree. You know, uh, why didn't they use that option? And then the other thing that happened obviously was. Uh, the fact that Speaker Pelosi chose to hold up the articles of mm-hmm. impeachment for about a month contributed to the Republican argument and response. Well, if this was so urgent, why did you hold them up for a month after you had, in fact, approved the articles of impeachment? You know, let's move on it. So it, there was kind of on both sides a kind of hurry up and then wait uh, yeah. type of uh, of issue. But I think you've got a good point that Certainly in hindsight, since they didn't get witnesses in the Senate, uh, it might have might have uh, played out differently if they had, in fact, subpoenaed the witnesses. They did subpoena, but if they'd followed through with judicial enforcement. Notice that uh, in terms of what could happen now, even after impeachment and acquittal, is that the House of Representatives still has uh, subpoena power so that, uh, you know, there is talk even now about subpoenaing John Bolton to see what he has to say, uh, even apart from the impeachment process. Why do you think that they didn't want witnesses? And how is it called a trial if you didn't have witnesses? Yeah, basically the the arguments by uh, the Republicans, except for Mitt Romney and Susan Collins, who supported having witnesses, was interesting in its own way. Uh, Basically, some of the Republicans, uh, Lamar Alexander was a critical vote uh, on not having witnesses. Uh, Lamar Alexander, Republican of Tennessee, who basically said, more or less, Trump did it. The evidence already compiled proves that he did it. I don't need any more witnesses. He, he said, we got three witnesses uh, that uh, witnessed an automobile accident, and they saw that one driver ran through the red light. We don't need a fourth witness to prove it. So basically, he was saying, we don't need Bolton. We don't need anybody else. We know he did it. The only issue is whether he should be removed from office, whether we should convict based on these allegations. So that's basically the the uh, the argument made by the Republicans who basically said, we don't need witnesses. There have, as you mentioned, uh, there have been witnesses in the Senate in previous impeachment trials, although even there, there haven't been that many, usually until now. I mean, even with with, uh, with, with Clinton's impeachment, there was a, oh, what's the right word? There, w- there was a degree of cooperation between the two parties that uh, is almost quaint by current standards, uh, in, in that the Republican leader at that time uh, and his Senate uh, Democratic colleague agreed on the procedures. The procedures were approved, I think, unanimously, and they agreed on which witnesses to call. So, and I think they called, you know, they called a handful of, of witnesses uh, during that trial. Mm-hmm. But uh, basically, as I suggested here, the uh, the Republicans who voted against were basically saying, we don't need more witnesses. We don't think he's, we don't think this conduct warrants removal, even if proved. Interestingly, uh, if you listen to Mitt Romney's uh, 
And if you haven't listened, I would urge your readers to listen and watch Mitt Romney give his speech, which is really quite dramatic and very moving. Very moving. Uh, But among other things, Romney says that the reason he wanted to hear from John Bolton was that he was hoping against hope that Bolton would provide evidence that maybe Trump wasn't as guilty as he appeared to be and might permit Romney to vote for acquittal. Uh, So, uh, you know, that was an interesting take uh, on why Romney wanted witnesses in hopes that he wouldn't have to follow what he thought his conscience required. You know, maybe I can get a window, he's saying. uh, Maybe there's something there uh, that would be favorable uh, to Trump. But I think the those who didn't want witnesses are basically saying, what's the point? Uh, and, and at this point, by the time the vote on witnesses took place, it was clearly the Republicans that wanted this to be over. Yeah. And they wanted it over quickly because uh, notwithstanding the possibility of expedited consideration by the courts that we've talked about, there was still a, sub- a substantial risk that if you call witnesses, Trump asserts privilege. It goes into the courts, potentially, and it drags on for weeks and weeks and weeks, and the Republicans, the majority of the Republicans, didn't want it. When you uh, look at the conduct of Mitch McConnell, which was the equivalent of uh, the prosecutor collaborating with the accused, and, I mean, he pretty much announced what his intentions are. No daylight between the Senate and the White House. And then no witnesses. And I think there was no evidence also, right? There were no document. Basically, what the way it worked in the Senate was uh, <coughs> it, uh, basically the House, man, they, the House had accumulated all kinds of evidence in the hearings, despite the fact that Trump was not turning over right. documents, despite the, except for the, in, in Trump's, uh, to Trump's credit, they released the transcript of the call. You know, he could have stonewalled on that, and he didn't. So, so that transcript of, of the call did come out, and the president, in his wisdom, thought that that vindicated him. It was a perfect phone call and all that. But, but apart from that, you've got, you know, stonewalling uh, by President Trump uh, w- with respect to the documents. Despite that, you have, I think, 17 witnesses coming forward, including the National Security Council uh, staff member, uh, that, that Liz mentioned earlier and then ended up getting fired. Uh, but you have all these witnesses come forward, the ambassador Sondland. Uh, so there's a lot of witnesses. And then it, during the Senate trial, the Senate managers, Schiff and the others, are uh, presenting video clips there from that evidence. So there was plenty of evidence that was in the record. Okay. But my question was, when you consider Mitch McConnell's uh, conduct... Um, especially with, with no witnesses in the Senate. Is this a legitimate acquittal? Well, that's a, the, the position of, of uh, Senator Schumer is that it's not. Right. You know, I mean, I mean, uh, I mean basically, uh, this is a matter of political debate, right? So Trump, by contrast, you know, so you've got Schumer and other Democrats saying that this is a illegitimate acquittal. Meanwhile, uh, President Trump has said, you know, this is, the impeachment was a witch hunt, and uh, he's actually called uh, for the House to expunge his impeachment. 
uh, just like, you know, you might have an expungement if you're a juvenile convicted yeah. of a crime, that yeah. kind of thing. Trump wants his impeachment expunged uh, because it was totally illegitimate in his view. So that's really a political debate. I mean, I think in McConnell's case, at one level, maybe with the notable exception of, of, of Mitt Romney, I think fairness would have to let you uh, conclude that probably, well, the, 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 the Democratic senators who were running for president, I think to a single person, said before the trial that Trump should be removed from office, that he should be convicted. So at one level, you know, the idea of impartial jurors mm-hmm. in the Senate isn't terribly realistic. The thing that McConnell did was blatantly declare and he said so explicitly, I'm not an impartial juror, even though he then takes the oath uh, to do impartial justice, uh, despite the fact that he has already said, I'm really not impartial. Out of all of this, uh, as a lawyer, what did he do wrong that any of the rest of us, any other American citizen, would have been arrested, would have gone to jail. So clearly there was something he did wrong. Uh, And maybe we're all confused as getting muddled between Democrats and doing this and Republicans doing this. And I get sense from a lot of people I've talked to that are upset with both parties, that it was just a muddled mess. And here we are going into another election and things aren't cleared up. So if President Trump did something wrong, he's gotten away with it. Uh, now what? Well, I think, I think what he did wrong, uh, based on, I would agree, overwhelming evidence, what he did wrong was by every indication, he in fact used his official power which you and I don't have, we're not president of the United States, he used his official power to withhold military aid to Ukraine that is in a military uh, confrontation with Russia. Uh, The money had been appropriated by Congress. It was a bipartisan uh, appropriation of money. Trump holds that money back in order to attempt to achieve a personal political benefit in the 2020 election by uh, essentially obtaining adverse information about the person who at that time at least was thought to be the front runner uh, in the Democratic uh, presidential nomination, Mitt Rom- uh, not Mitt Romney, uh, Joe, Biden. Joe Biden. Joe Biden. So that's what he did wrong. I mean, it, and that's not necessarily a criminal offense. It's not something that you or I would be able to do because we're not in power. Okay. Uh, so, but it is, as alleged, an abuse of power. So that's why, you know, basically, and you have this longstanding debate about impeachment. Impeachment in the Constitution is provided, uh, the terms of the Constitution say that the president, and for that matter, other executive branch officials, as well as federal judges, can be impeached and, if convicted, removed from office for treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. So that the, the, the phrase high crimes and misdemeanors has been much debated with 
presidents oftentimes asserting, and this goes back to Richard Nixon, Bill Clinton, uh, and then Trump, asserting that it has to be an indictable offense. In other words, that if it's not a literal crime, I cannot be impeached and removed. That argument has generally been rejected by those who have looked at the history and the, and the intent of the impeachment clause, that it was basically designed to, in fact, go after extreme abuses of power, whether or not they are indictable criminal offenses. So the charge against Trump is that that's exactly what this is. And it's not something that you or I could go to jail for because we don't have that power. We don't have, Mm -hmm. we we can't control military aid to Ukraine. You know, you have other government officials at different levels may have government power uh, and they could abuse that power. But ordinary citizens, we're in a different boat. For our listening audience, we're speaking with uh, Daniel Conkle, a Robert H. McKinney Professor of Law Emeritus and Adjunct Professor of Religious Studies at Indiana University. Let me. Uh, you go ahead. Yeah. Okay. L- let me let me interject here for a minute and kind of pivot. I want to go back to uh, something you said about the Mueller investigation. So, <clears throat> if the Constitution uh, lays out a process to impeach and remove a sitting president, which means he has to be indicted, right? No. No? No. It does not have so, to be indicted. Well, like, suppose, hypothetically, the Senate had voted, had picked up 20 Republicans, and they'd voted to convict Trump. He's out. He would be out of office, even if he had never been indicted of any criminal offense. Oh. Do, so, so does the Constitution allow for a president to be indicted? That, that is also a debated question, Okay. but uh, the uh, policy of the lawyers that work within the, the federal government for a long time uh, with, with either party uh, in power, the, the judgment of those lawyers has been that a sitting president cannot be indicted criminally. The reasoning behind that is that it would, in essence, potentially circumvent the impeachment process. In other words, imagine that a president is indicted and not just indicted, but convicted of a criminal offense before a court and thrown in jail. How is the president, if he hasn't been removed from office, how is he supposed to govern from a prison cell somewhere? So, so the theory that the president cannot be indicted while he's in office is that if the president is engaged in criminal conduct, that is one reason to impeach and remove, even though abuse of power may be another reason. Uh, but basically, you, you can't simply circumvent and avoid the impeachment process by going through the criminal process. That being said, uh, the Constitution makes it quite clear, explicitly so, that uh, uh, even if a president is impeached and removed, if it was for criminal conduct, then the president can be indicted and potentially thrown in jail. And what's more, even if the president is not impeached or is not removed, the president can be indicted after he leaves office. So that if, uh, and to the extent that President Trump has committed any criminal offenses, once he leaves office, he would be subject to potential prosecution for Okay, those. let me get this straight. So the Constitution specifically says that he can be indicted after he leaves office. It says that, that, that impeachment and removal... Uh-huh. does not preclude indictment prosecution. Okay, so because yeah. my question was, how could the DOJ 
set of policy that would go against the Constitution. But the way you explained it, uh, the Constitution is kind of ambiguous on that matter, uh, as debatable. So now, now so ba- I, I understand. So, so ba- but basi- basically, the the issue is really, it's quite clear that the president can be indicted after being removed. The open question is, can he be indicted before? Uh, and on that one, the the DOJ has concluded consistently for a number of years, decades, that he cannot. Can another uh, DOJ under a different administration change that policy? Yes. They could, but 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 uh, and and one of the troubling aspects of, to my mind, as as a uh, lawyer, uh, in our current culture, I mean, the DOJ historically has been regarded as, obviously influenced by, politics in the sense that they may be part of an administration. The attorney general is appointed by the president. Even so, there has been a sense of professionalism, that has transcended party that has led to uh, the Office of Legal Counsel in the DOJ being highly respected with opinions that are honored uh, and, and that set precedents, just like court decisions, that typically are honored from one administration to the next. So uh, I, I, I can't remember which administration was in power when this particular uh, policy was formulated, but it has passed back and forth. It could be changed, uh, and one hopes, I would hope, that it would not be changed based on partisan political considerations, but instead, if it is to be changed, it would be based upon, you know, legal analysis. You know, over the years, um, you know, I, I know and most people know that in life there's highs and lows, and you go through good times, and everybody's happy, everybody's working, everybody. We're all in one accord. Then you go through bad times. That's life. Have you ever seen a mess like this before? Or in your knowledge, has there ever been politics like this, a president like this ever in the past? It's just just one of those. Well, you know, not in my lifetime. Uh, You know, I mean, uh, uh, we've had struggles worse than this. We had the Civil War, okay? So we had... That was worse. uh, Yeah, and... and, uh, in the lead up to the Civil War, uh, especially, some of the battles in Congress maybe were beyond what we have now. I mean, people uh, engaging in fistfights uh, on the floor of Congress uh, and, and the like. So maybe it's been worse if you go back far enough, and certainly the Civil War. Uh, but uh, in my lifetime, no, I know I haven't seen anything like this, and and. and and um, part of it, I mean, the this is another show, but uh, another a topic for another hour or more. But the extreme polarization that we have now, uh, I've never seen. You know, in terms of, and, and I think part of it is the, uh, uh, the the fact that each party has become more homogeneous. Uh, so the Republicans are all conservatives now. You don't have the Northeastern Republicans except for Susan Collins, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, And she's fading fast. She's fading fast. And conversely, like it or not, the Democratic Party had the Southern Democrats mm-hmm. who, in fact, engaged with Republicans on various issues in the past. So you had that kind of overlap. The parties weren't purified 
Uh, and then you got gerrymandering, and then you've got so, you know what they call the echo effect, where people are only listening to people in their own little yes. circles and social media and Fox News or MSNBC and all that. So I think that that all of that extreme polarization contaminated uh, the impeachment process uh, like it, it contaminates everything else. So as a lawyer, would you say Trump has gotten away with doing something wrong? Then what do you envision next if he's reelected? What don't, do you don't, think? Don't, don't say that. Don't say that. <laughs> I'm just, what if? You know, there's always well, a... Well, so, I mean, speaking so of... So we got to yeah. follow laws that he don't have to. Speaking of, you know, Susan Collins, uh, and she voted to acquit, even though she had voted for witnesses. You know, she voted to acquit saying, well, I think this impeachment is really going to chasten President Trump. I mean, he, he won't uh, do anything like this again. And... Uh, I think that's utterly unrealistic. So, so basically, uh, who knows? Is is my response? I do not know what. Uh, uh, What's your gut tell you? Well, it doesn't tell me anything good. Okay. <laughs> you know who who would have thought? Certainly not me. That Mitt Romney would one day be held up as the standard for courage. Well, you really, know. I mean, I mean, I mean, again, if you listen to that speech, I mean, uh, I did, I did. Uh, it's, and it it's, was moving. It was very moving, and and it it. Uh, I saw a man there, a real man, a, a human being, and you know, f- his faith was right there, uh, and his uh, oath to take, you know, to do impartial justice, an oath under God. I mean, and and, and as he said. He knew he would get abused by Trump uh, for voting as he did, which made it all the more uh, moving that he, in fact, took that position. Oh, and he would probably be abused by other folks, not only just tr- Trump. I mean, he know yeah. in order to do that, he had to have known, you know, a lesser man would have just buckled. Exactly. Thought, man, it's not going to be worth it. Exactly. I'm going to put myself through this and my family. Right. And and he had to thought about that. Yeah. I'm, you know, just listening to him, his words, uh, and how that it was just heavy on him. And he stood up, felt I did the right thing. Uh, I just profile of courage. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You, you should hear the rant on Fox News uh-huh. against Mitt Romney. But um, yeah, on 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 another matter, for the last several months I can't even remember when it started but I've been constantly hearing constitutional crisis constitutional crisis so can you help us to understand exactly what that term means and have we experienced or are we still experiencing a constitutional crisis well that's a matter of of definition I guess I mean the 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 typical at least the obvious constitutional crisis is if uh, the president would uh, ignore a judicial order, for example, so that when President Nixon was threatened with impeachment, he, in fact, was, he did have documents subpoenaed, tapes, uh, audio tapes subpoenaed, and it went to the Supreme Court. And Nixon had sort of threatened through his lawyer, at least floated a trial balloon, that he might not follow it. In other words, even if the Supreme Court ruled against him, that 
Nixon may not agree. He may not follow the order. Trump's not done that. Trump has not been uh, in a position to violate a judicial order. That would be a constitutional crisis if he did, because he would not be honoring uh, the judicial power uh, in interpreting the Constitution. The other obvious constitutional crisis, even more extreme, uh, would be if Trump uh, were defeated in the election and he claims, you know, that it was fraudulent, uh, that I really was elected and refused to leave. Okay, well, at that point, you're in the same situation as other countries than ours uh, in the developing world, for example, face sometimes where presidents cling to power despite the fact that they seemingly have been voted out. Now, I think that our system so far has uh, not indicated that it would cave in to that kind of assertion of essentially dictatorial power, but that would truly be a constitutional crisis. Interesting that you should say that because in my mind, I have no reason to have any faith in the Republican Senate if Donald Trump wanted to go that route. It, it just seems, it just based well, on... I think every- it would basically be, you know, you hate to even think about it, but basically, um, how, how, would it, how would it play out? Okay, so suppose that, let's say Joe Biden is the nominee, just to pick a name, and Biden wins uh, the Electoral College, and what, Biden shows up at the White House and Trump tries to say he can't come in? I mean, exactly how that would play out is kind of hard to imagine. I, I but think, at the end of the day, it comes down to, you hate to think about it. but I you think know. he would conspire with his with, with uh, Bill Barr and Mitch McConnell and, they would, and Lindsey Graham, and they would try and figure out a way to make it work. Well, and, and Fox News. But how? Uh, but how? I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, you hate to think about it, but at, at some level in other countries where this has been an issue, it depends on what the generals do. It depends on the military. The president is the commander in chief. At the moment, I would trust our military to honor their oath uh, to uh, to the Constitution. Uh, but you hate I hate to even think that we'd get into that kind of a situation, but who knows? You know, yeah, we've had knows? some strange things happening. Well, we got about uh, three minutes left. Go is ahead, there Liz. is there anything that you would like to say uh, that we didn't go over? Something that you felt we might have missed? Uh, no, I think the only thing, the, the other thing that is interesting, if you want to try to defend the acquittal, uh, is the position of some of the Republican senators, I'm thinking of Marco uh, Rubio, uh-huh. uh, who basically said, more or less, he's guilty, it yeah. is an impeachable offense, but I still don't think he should be removed because it would make things even worse. Uh, in other words, you'd have a revolt in the streets, uh, in essence, uh, sort of on prudential grounds, uh, that we should not remove the president from office in the current cultural climate because it would be uh, fanning the flames of, mm-hmm. of the cultural divide, which I think is an interesting position. Mitt Romney basically in his speech said, well, you know, I'm obliged to follow my duty as senator. Let the chips fall where they may. Um, our producer just indicated we do have a few extra minutes. So okay. let, let me ask this last question. Um, Pat Cipollone started out his opening statement just lying. 
saying things like Democrats failed to give Donald Trump due process. President was forbidden from attending. Uh, uh, The president was not allowed to call witnesses. And then um, I think Jerry Nadler said something. He was going, he was responding to uh, someone from the Senate. And Justice Roberts uh, kind of reprimanded both sides on their impeachment discourse. Right. But when Pat Cipollone started just telling these blatant lies, wasn't Justice Roberts obligated to step in at some point? Because the I, I mean, the lies were so obvious. I think I think Chief Justice Roberts. I mean, if you go back historically, like when uh, when uh, Johnson was impeached way back, you know, in the aftermath of the Civil War, when he was tried, the Chief Justice at that time. I think thought of of the impeachment trial as being closer to what a criminal trial might be, uh, and the chief justice thought he could rule on evidence and do things like an ordinary judge would do. Mm-hmm. I think by the time you got through the Clinton impeachment uh, and uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist at that time basically didn't want to be perceived to be political and he wanted to play as little of a role as possible. And I think Chief Justice Roberts sort of followed that model. Uh, and uh, I think it was, uh, I don't know if I brought it with me, but I think it was uh, Chief, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist who said something like, uh, I did very, very little and I did it very well. Uh, so it was, it was sort of like Roberts, I think, was just reluctant to intervene, except he did do two things. Uh, he, he called for civility, uh, reminding the Senate that it has historically been regarded as the world's greatest deliberative body. The other thing he did was refuse to read the question from uh, uh, the senator, Rand was it Paul, Rand, Rand Paul, uh, who named the whistleblower, and Roberts refused to do that. Uh, so he did do those two things, but otherwise it was really a purely ceremonial role uh, whether he should have or could have exercised more power, um, that that was, I think, his judgment. He did also say, by the way, that uh, if if this vote on witnesses had been 50-50, which it wasn't, he would not have broken the tie, Yeah, uh, which was a debated question yeah. uh, before uh, Roberts made that clear. And he didn't reprimand Rand Paul for, uh, he left the chambers and I guess went out and gave a name to the reporters, right? which was not supposed to have been mentioned in the chambers. And could Roberts have done something about that? Because he clearly well, didn't want... I mean, again, if, 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 if he were acting like an ordinary judge, he which he have. wasn't, yeah. uh, it, it could have conceivably been contempt of court. Uh, but uh, the impeachment process is partially legal, partially political, uh, and... It's this messy thing that really it never will work and it never would work unless you have bipartisan support and you didn't mm-hmm. have it. And it Do was, you feel that that's something that needs to be cleaned up and worked on in the future, that we need to have that cleaned up and, and so it says? Well, the problem is, is that the way the Constitution, uh, the Constitution cannot be amended except by an extraordinary act of two-thirds in each house has to be bipartisan again. So conceivably, uh, you could do it, but 
Uh, very, very unlikely. Okay. And uh, unfortunately, we are out of time. Where did it go? Um, but who knows? Maybe we'll get another impeachment, and uh, Professor Conkle, maybe we can, <laughs> can come back. We can get you back on. You know, we've had three, so if you count Nixon, uh, three in my lifetime, and there was only one before that. Yeah. So we're in we the really impeachment. We're in the era of impeachment, yeah. potentially. Yeah. Well, so. we really appreciate you being here and discussing this Enjoyed with us. It. On that note, we want to thank Professor Daniel Conkle, a Robert H. McKinney Professor of Law Emeritus and Adjunct Professor of Religious Studies at Indiana University, for joining us to discuss constitutional issues and fallout surrounding the recent impeachment process for President Donald J. Trump. I have a hard time saying that. <laughs> Yeah, we really uh, uh, thank you very much for, for coming today. Okay. Today, February the 22nd, Elizabeth, a free woman of color. It's a, a play, theatrical play performance, and it will take place at 7 o'clock at Monroe County History Center, but we need our people to be there about 6.30. Monroe County History Center, located at 202 East 6th Street here in Bloomington, uh, the event is $5. The Monroe County History Center is charging $5 donation. And there will be um, Resilience Productions is putting on this, this play for our audience. And again, that's at 202 East 6th Street here in Bloomington. The event is $5 at the Monroe County History Center. Also on February the 25th at Monroe County History Center, and I believe that will be at 6, will be the viewing of Eyes on the Prize, the um, Little Rock Nine. And so we will have that presentation and a Q&A afterwards. Elizabeth, we would really like people to come out and see that. This is based on a court document that Resilience Productions came across of a slave in Indiana who sued for their freedom and won. So you want, want, might want to come out and see that. And it is uh, children friendly to learn a little bit of history about Indiana. Okay. And uh, Dark Past, Bright Future will now share a preview of what to expect at the Elizabeth 
theatrical performance. You're going to see Dr. Gladys Devane at her best during this performance. Uh, it's directed by Daniel Bruce, and I will give the historical commentary about this true event. And it is definitely worth viewing. This is a, a show that we've been working on for quite a while. We performed it for the inmates at Pendleton, and now we want to present it to our hometown of Bloomington before we hit the road, and we're taking it to French Lick, Bedford, Harrison County, where the event actually happened, and also the Gene and Marilyn Glick History Center in Indianapolis. So we are excited to present it here in Bloomington, our home base, Elizabeth, a woman of color. So who, Liz, who's working with you on, on this production? I, I know um, Resilience Productions. Resilience is, Productions is, is uh, myself, Gladys Devane, and Daniel Bruce. Uh, this is just one of our mini plays, uh -huh. uh, Remarkable Women. We do a little mini series, and this is one of the plays of that series. And every couple of years, we put on a major production, which we're in the process of working on now. We're in the beginning stages of that. We, um, I don't think there's any group like us that develop plays all the way through from the research to the writing, directoring, and then put it on stage and we use local actors or even if you haven't acted. So when we do a call for, for actors to come out, anybody in Bloomington can come out and audition. Who are some of the local actors that, that you're going to be using? I remember going to your last play, and you used quite a few, quite a bit of talent from the community. We did. We used uh, Renee Reed quite a lot. We have used um, uh, Maria Biggs. We've used Richard Brown. Uh, let's see. Is Cornelius? Uh, uh, Cornelius Wright has been year. in a couple of them, with along with his grandson. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, Aaliyah Moore, that's the two kids we've used quite frequently, and uh, just a lot of the community people, uh, too many to, I don't want to forget anybody, not sure I am, but uh, we believe in our local talent because it's really good here. And we want to tell the stories of the African-American history and culture and the experiences that have gone through. And we try to find stories that are basically little known or completely unknown mm -hmm. to put them on the stage. Everyone hears about Madam Walker, Martin Luther King, right. George Washington Carver, but there's so many other people that have contributed to Indiana becoming a state and America becoming an America. Everyone needs to know these stories. And and I got to say, you do a really, really good job of uncovering and bringing those untold stories uh, to the community. I, I mean, am passionate really about it. putting this history out because, you know, it's really something <clears throat> people go, oh, I didn't know that. I even heard on a national news program that uh, they did not know or had not heard of Major Taylor. He was the number one athlete in the world, and people did not know who he was. He was from Indianapolis, and he was a bicycle rider. He was a bicyclist. And at the time that he rode, baseball and bicycle, that was the two biggest 
sporting events. Really? And he was number one in the world. And they have the velodrome up in Indianapolis named after him. And and to hear people go, oh, who is he? That's just unbelievable. And people here in Indiana did not know until we presented it on stage. Guilty. So these are the things. That's why we're so passionate. The three of us are so passionate about getting stories out so that we're interwoven in the fabric of America and people know that, that yes, African-Americans have a rightful place in the history books of America. Okay. Well, on that note, Liz, I want to say uh, thank you to you uh, for that thought-provoking overview of Elizabeth, the Free Woman of Color theatrical performance that takes place on Saturday, February 22nd at 7 p.m. at Mm -hmm. the Monroe County History Center. That address is 202 East 6th Street here in Bloomington. Also, once again, we want to thank Professor Daniel Conkle, a Robert H. McKinney Professor of Law Emeritus and Adjunct Professor of Religious Studies at Indiana University for coming on to discuss constitutional, constitutional issues and fallout surrounding the recent impeachment process. Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringiton at wfhb.org. Our show's producer is Clarence Boone with help from WFHB's News Department Director, Mr. Cade Young. Tonight's board engineer was Chantal LaFontant. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I am William Hosea. And I'm Liz Mitchell. Good to be here with you this evening, William. Tune in next Monday, February 17th at 6 p.m. for another exciting edition of Bring It On right here at your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.